But I've read on uh, January 6th in 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed Congress on the state of the war in Europe. And although much of what he said that day has been forgotten, his closing sentiments have been remembered in history. He said that he looked forward, quote, to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. And then he named them. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. These ideals, however, have not yet been fully realized anywhere in the world. Now, Romans chapter 8 and verses 1 to 4 is, in a large sense, a declaration of freedom for every follower of Christ. In these few verses, Paul has declared at least four spiritual freedoms afforded to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, because of our relationship with Christ through faith, in those four verses, we find that we have freedom from the punishment for sin. In other words, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have freedom from the power of sin's control in verse 2, meaning no dominion, no domination from sin in our lives. And as Christians, we have freedom from the penalty of sin in verse 3, which means we don't owe a thing. There's no obligation. And we have the freedom to pursue and perfect righteousness in verse 4, so we have no restrictions and no obstructions if we are in Christ Jesus. Theologian Donald Bloch has said, quote, it's time for less dialogue and more monologue with God doing all the talking, unquote. In light of that sober statement, hear the word of the Lord. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of the sin of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I want you to repeat after me the words that are going to be on the screen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Say it again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 has been called the most hopeful verse in Scripture. Now, I don't think there's a person in this room who on the day that they stand face to face with Christ, on the day when the final judgment is pronounced upon our life, does not hope to hear the word spilled from Jesus' mouth, no condemnation. Is there someone here today who would not want to hear those words? That's good. I'm in good company. Do you want to know what the reality is, folks? You don't have to wait. 
You don't have to wait. That proclamation is as sure today as it will be on the day that you die if you are in Christ Jesus. God said it quite succinctly, and we can trust his word. The one who sits in the place of ultimate power will never, nor could he ever, perjure himself. Amen? Hebrews chapter 16, I mean chapter 6, verse 13 says this, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. In other words, so God was saying, so help me me, right? That his word is trustworthy. His word is truth. His word is something that we can hold on to. And when he says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, friends, there is therefore now no condemnation. Can we really grasp the full weight of that and the force of that truth? Maybe if we were in the place of someone on death row, in those final seconds before the injection is given, we could understand the sheer terror of what it means to be condemned to die and then pardoned. But the gospel of grace has become so familiar to us that we're often unmoved by the wonder of it all. Quite frankly, we need frequent reminders of it, of the incomparable freedom which we have been granted as believers in Christ, the undeserved favor that we've been shown as believers in Christ. And the striking story of Richard Wine and Judy Lawson is one of, the, of my favorite ones which prompts us to reflect on what it means to be pardoned from horrendous sin. I first heard Richard's story in a talk given by Dr. Art Lindsley in 1993, which was later reiterated in his book, Love, the Ultimate Apologetic, the Heart of Christian Witness. Dr. Lindsley met Richard Wine in Avon Park Correctional Institution in Southern Florida, and then later had the privilege of meeting and spending extensive time with Judy Lawson. This is their story. Richard murdered Judy's son, her favorite son, and he was imprisoned for first-degree murder, life sentence. And Judy was a believer and even involved in prison ministry. And as you can imagine, she had the greatest struggle dealing with this kind of bitterness and anger and hatred toward this one who had killed her son. It was just consuming her for a period of weeks and months and I'm not sure just exactly how long it went on, says Art, but it continued for a long, long time, as you can well imagine. Understandably, it was a major victory to her finally, after all this time, to be able to even get down on her knees and pray for this man. It was a major victory in her life just to pray for him. Now, perhaps she could have left it there, but she decided then to write to him in that prison. And she wrote a letter that said something like this. Quote, Richard, I'm the mother of the man that you murdered and I want to let you know that I'm praying for you. And then she told him the gospel. That if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he's not only going to forgive your sins, but he will also forgive the sin of murdering my son. Now, could you do that? Richard got the letter and he thought that the woman was absolutely bonkers, crazy. He balled it up and he threw it away and he didn't think about it anymore. Well, over the period of the next five years, 
she would periodically write to him another letter reminding him of basically the same exact thing. And she was still praying for him and there was forgiveness available for him in Christ. And finally it started to eat at him and he started to get, it started to get under his skin. And he had a period after that five years of two weeks in solitary confinement, what they call the hole, and he was in there and he took a Bible with him. They allowed him to have a Bible. And he started with Genesis and in those couple of weeks he read all the way through to Revelation. And he said that when he got to Isaiah, something started to happen in his heart. And by the time he finished the New Testament, he had committed his life to Jesus Christ. And when he got out of solitary, the first thing he did was write a letter to Judy Lawson saying, quote, I just committed my life to Christ and I wanted you to be the first one to know, unquote. Well, she could have left it there, but instead she decided to come down and visit him in that prison. You can imagine that first meeting where Richard Wine and Judy Lawson met, and he asked her for forgiveness. And she granted it. And they embraced as a brother and sister in Jesus Christ. She knew that he was young, struggling believer, and there was no discipleship in that prison, so she got him involved in a Bible study correspondence course. He didn't know how to type, so occasionally she would type one of his papers. And the relationship grew to the point where she would go to, uh, she would go to her church early on Sunday morning and then come down to, and worship with him in the maximum security prison chapel. Absolutely amazing to me. Art continues that when he preached there that Sunday morning, there they were sitting together. Richard Wine, Judy Lawson, and that what, what a very visible manifestation of grace and love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ that showed. Many people in that maximum security prison came to Christ as a result of that story. Richard's cell door, whenever it was possible, was open and people were always coming in to talk to him because he had such a glow in his eyes and a radiance on his face. He knew the grace of Christ in flesh as well as in the spirit. But the best part of the story, says Art, the, the part that breaks through our numbing familiarity with the gospel is something that goes beyond our normal human understanding, something that transcends our normal human intellect, something so liberating, so incomprehensible that it shakes us to the very core of our faith. And it happened just before Art Lindsley arrived to preach in that chapel that Sunday. Judy had presented to Richard a Thompson Chain reference Bible and inscribed on the inside of the front cover of that Bible were these words. To Richard, my beloved adopted son, from your adopted mother. Now, you and I cannot begin to imagine the liberation and security that must have swept over Richard's being as he read those words. Now, though he had indeed committed the crime, even though he was guilty of all that he was charged with, the grace of Christ operating through the life of Judy Lawson and then in his own heart had set him free. The power of God's grace frees us from the prison of sin's grave. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
After a very difficult message last week on the lies that we tell each other and the lies we believe, that is the message of truth that I believe that God wants us to embrace today. God's bold declaration that in Christ we are set free from guilt, from condemnation that sin has imposed upon us. We're free from its penalty and its power. And it is that truth that gives us a strong sense of spiritual security. In fact, spiritual security is Paul's theme throughout this entire chapter of Romans 8. Like bookends, chapter 8 begins with the declaration that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation possible, and it ends with the promise that nothing can ever sever us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no condemnation, therefore there can be no separation. You get that? Not now, not ever. That's security. If you want assurance of your eternal salvation that once you are in the family of God, you will never be able to lose that standing that literally come hell or high water, your anchor is going to hold, then this is your chapter, Romans chapter 8. The Holy Spirit has it secured your salvation. But don't be misled by the theological slogan that once saved, always saved, into thinking that once you've made a decision for Christ, you can go off and do anything you want to, be completely confident that it's all covered by the blood, because that's not what your Bible teaches. That's not what my Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. There's a lot more to it than that. But neither should you fear that the first time that you sin or backslide, you've forfeited your eternal inheritance as a child of God. In the first four verses of Romans chapter 8, and that's all we're going to look at today, Paul states at least four incontrovertible facts about the security of our hope in Christ. The first one is this. Our security is reliable because of God's bold guarantee. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's significant to me that in the original text, the word no is actually the first word in the sentence. The idea behind this small Greek word is one of complete cessation, in other words, Paul emphatically and undeniably declares that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, no judgment, no sentence of death, no lingering penalty of sin to be paid, none, nada, nothing, no. It's the first word there. You say, but I thought the fact that we are sinners both by birth and by nature makes us guilty. I thought the wages of my sin is death, or the wages of any sin is death. And doesn't, my, doesn't the Bible say that there is no one who is purely righteous, not even one? Therefore, we aren't, aren't we under the condemnation of a holy and righteous God? Doesn't he have to judge sin or ultimately deny his own character? Yes, all of that is true. But there is a word in this verse that we cannot ignore. One word that sets the record straight. It's the word therefore. Therefore. 
Friends, let me remind you of a very simple and basic rule of Bible study. You've heard me say it a million times. I'll say it again. Whenever you see a therefore, you need to look back to see what the therefore is there for. Okay? Therefore is like a reverse direction card in the game Uno. That's exactly what therefore is. It turns the play around and points us back in the other direction. So what is it that Paul points to in order to clarify the fact that our salvation is so secure? His thought extends back to the whole thrust of what he just laid out in the first seven chapters. And what's that? That through faith in Jesus Christ alone, we can be justified, declared righteous. Here's a simple thing to remember about justification. Justification, justified. What's it mean? It's like God saying, just as if I never sinned. Justified. Only when we place our faith in Christ are we declared righteous by God, acquitted, pardoned, forgiven, actually adopted into the family as a beloved son or daughter, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. Now, like Richard Wine and Judy Lawson, we come to understand that there's no amount of time that can be served, no amount of good behavior that can be perfected, no amount of sorrowful words or deeds that can be said or done that would sufficiently pay the penalty for the crimes that you and I have committed against God. Guilty is guilty. Amen? Now, the first seven chapters lay out in vivid detail the reality that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to alleviate those guilty charges against us and that only by believing that at the cross Jesus fulfilled the penalty of death and that was charged against us and trusting in him we are freed from condemnation. Just look at Romans chapter 5 for a moment. The first two verses, therefore we have, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Skip down to verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Verse 18, so then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Which men? Those who are in Christ Jesus, according to Romans 8.1. The central message of the entire 66 books of the Bible are encapsulated in chapters 1 through 7 of the book of Romans. You want it in a three-second soundbite? I can give you the whole thing. 66 books of the Bible, Romans chapter 1 through 7 in one soundbite. Here it is. God made us. We blew it. Christ paid for it. We must receive him. That's it. That's the whole message of the gospel. And when we receive him by faith, 
Romans 8, 1 becomes the central anchor point of our eternal existence. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the crucial message that everyone needs to know to be absolved from his past and assured of his future. There's no ambiguity in Romans 8, 1. None whatsoever, and I mean no ambiguity. Our security is reliable because of God's bold guarantee. Now notice what Paul doesn't say, okay? He doesn't claim that there were no faults, no failures, no inconsistencies, no corruptions, or no valid accusations. He doesn't say that there is no reason for condemnation. He doesn't say that we don't deserve condemnation. He doesn't even hint that there will be no practical consequences. But what he does say is this, that we are no longer under the pressing weight of a condemning judgment. No condemnation. Say it with me. No condemnation. I like the way J.B. Phillips translates this verse. He says, the truth is, that no condemnation now hangs over the head of those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing hanging over your head if you're in Christ. But there's even more. Paul doesn't base his assertion upon our, our conduct or behavior, but upon our spiritual position. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean, then, to be in Christ? It means not only being outwardly identified with him, but being an inward and inextricable part of him. You're part of Christ. It's one of the deepest concepts and mysteries of the entire scripture. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27. Paul's passion was that he may present every man complete in Christ. That's Colossians 1.28. It means that we live and we breathe and we find our existence in him. Which begs the question, do you? Do you? It means that his divine life pulses through us who are in Christ. It pulses through you. Which begs the question, does it? Does it? It means that he possesses you. Which begs the question, does he? Martin Luther said this, it is, it is impossible for a man to be a Christian without having Christ. Well, that sounds pretty basic, doesn't it? But don't write that off as some fluff statement. Faith unites the soul with Christ as a spouse with her husband. Everything which Christ has becomes the property of the believing soul. That's what Luther say, says. Everything which Christ has becomes the property of the believer's soul, the believing soul. Everything which the soul has becomes the property of Christ. 
It is then that a blessed exchange commences. All the sins of the believer, those sins are lost and abolished in him. Thus, by faith, the soul is delivered from sins and clothed with the eternal righteousness of her bridegroom, Christ. You want to know what it means to be in Christ? Go home and read the book of Ephesians and circle every occurrence of the words in Christ or in him. And then go back and read it again. And then go back and read it again. And you keep reading it for the rest of your life. And then you'll come away with maybe an inkling of what it means to be in Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, second part of the verse says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Don't write those words off so quickly. Those are very, very deep and important and and mind-shattering and life-shattering words. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The difference between being in Christ and not being in Christ It's really kind of the difference between Philippians 1.21 and Philippians 2.21. Philippians 1.21 says, Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the attitude. Philippians 2.21, Paul laments, For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. You see those two, the contrast between those two? Ultimately, it's the difference between life and death. 1 John chapter 5 and verses 10 through 12 says this. It'll be on the screen. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. That's reliable. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our security is reliable because of God's bold guarantee. Secondly, our security is resolved through God's boundless grace. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Up until this point, the Holy Spirit has been mentioned only once in the first seven chapters of Romans. But in chapter 8, he's mentioned 20 times in this one chapter. Literally, it's his life in us that enables us to resist the intense pull that sin exerts on us on a daily basis. His regulating control over our bent on sinning is what actually sets us free. The spiritual life that is imparted into the life of every believer when they come to faith in Christ enables us not only to desire God's will, but actually to do it. The message expresses it like this. 
A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death, unquote. That's J.B. Phillips' translation. And he uses that phrase, brutal tyranny. That's what sin is, right? It's a brutal tyranny. But you know what the problem is in our culture? Even within the professing body of Christ? The people don't see the pull of sin in their lives as a brutal tyranny which eventually leads to death. They don't see it that way. Our culture is under the false assumption that real freedom is the removal of all restraints and all restrictions. That's true freedom. And right now, too much of the church has blurred the lines between our freedom as Christians and our freedom as Americans. They are two separate entities, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Two separate entities. One has to do with the kingdom of God, whose true citizens we are. The other has to do with the kingdom of this world, which is our temporary home. Mark the word temporary. Do n please, 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 do not confuse nor equate patriotism with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't confuse that. You can be a patriot, you can be a Christian. Don't think the two are the same. They are not the same. My dear friends, we need desperately to realize that the freedom and prosperity that we have enjoyed in this country, and I love it, and I am thankful to God for it, but we all need to realize that they are temporal blessings at best, and they are blessings, by the way, only insofar as they are lived out according to the righteousness of God. We cannot be the land of the free if we do not know and we do not live according to the author of true freedom, Jesus Christ. It's that simple. Equating freedom with the removal of all earthly restraints is exactly the lie that Satan perpetrated in the garden. And by one act of disobedience, all humanity was placed under the brutal tyranny of sin and death. We thought the sexual revolution of the 60s would liberate us. Yet what has it given us? AIDS, no-fault divorce, fatherless homes, sexual predators, and an entire generation of dysfunctional and depressed people who are handcuffed to pornography and psychiatry and Prozac. Okay? That's not to say that Prozac doesn't help people. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying. The lifting of all restraints does not liberate. None of those things makes us free. Rather, they make us freewheeling. Freewheeling like a runaway train, screeching down a steep and slippery slope toward destruction. And the Bible says that there comes a certain point at which God takes his foot off the brakes and gives people over to their own rebellious momentum. And he may be doing that right now in history. Romans chapter 1. If you don't believe me, just turn there. Let me remind you of it. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. Depraved mind. God gave them over, how many times in this passage? To the lust of their hearts, to degrading passions, and to a depraved mind, so that they wouldn't even know that they're doing wrong. That they think they're doing right when they're doing wrong. That's how the, the thing ends in verse 31 and 32. You want to read something that's very, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Kind of prophetic. You want to read it? You spend some time in Lamentations chapter 2 this week. Read and meditate on Lamentations chapter 2 and compare it to Romans chapter 1. See what you think. What did God do to Israel? What's happening now? If you think that the principles of God has outlined in his word have somehow shortchanged your freedom, I want you to think again because God has set the boundaries not to limit our freedom but for our own good and security because when God says don't, he says what? Don't hurt yourself, right? Don't you tell your two-year-old, don't go out in the street, don't go near the pool, don't wander off in Walmart, don't you touch that cookie. You see, your eyes will be opened. Your eyes will be opened, Satan promised Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, 5. But he failed to mention that their hands would be tied. The words of a popular Christian song written at the time of the collapse of the Berlin Wall captured the truth well when they warned freedom. People cry for freedom. But freedom without Jesus is just another wall. They were right. They were right. It is the Spirit who gives us life in Christ who has truly liberated us, amen? In that we no longer are powerless against the pull of sin. He has set you free from the law of sin and death, it says in verse 2. In other words, in Christ, sin cannot claim you, sin cannot condemn you, and sin can no longer control you. Does that mean that we can achieve perfection in this life? Absolutely not. The unfortunate truth is that even a person who has the Holy Spirit residing in them will constantly struggle with the presence of sin, but they no longer have to be enslaved by its power. Before a person comes to Christ, they're under the illusion that they can stop sinning whenever they choose to. Are people under that delusion? 
People think that they can quit sinning like if they can quit smoking. But what people don't realize is that the human predicament is so desperate, according to Paul, that there is simply no way that a human can overcome it on their own. No way. You see, without Christ, you and I are not merely people who commit sin. We are sinners, the Bible says. We not only fall, but the Bible says we are fallen. We don't simply lose our way. The Bible says we're lost. We sin because it's our nature. Wretched man that I am, says the Apostle Paul. Who will free me from the life that is dominated by sin in Romans chapter 7, verse 24? But just as all seems hopeless, the answer emerges. Paul says, thank God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in verse 25 of chapter 7. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of the sin and death. Jesus said, oh, you want to know what true freedom is? Read Romans 6, verses 15 to 23 this week. I'm not going to take the time to do it right now because we're running short. But Romans 6, 15 to 23. If you have a copy of the message, read it in that paraphrase. It's really kind of eye-opening. Jesus said, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. In John 8, 34. But he followed it up with this. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you're going to be free indeed. A.W. Tozer wrote these profound words. He says, so it becomes the, devil biz the devil's business to keep the Christian spirit imprisoned. He knows that the believing and justified Christian has been raised up out of the grave of his sins and trespasses. And from that point on, Satan works that much harder to keep us bound and gagged actually imprisoned in our own grave clothes. He knows that if we continue in this kind of bondage, that we are not much better off than when we were spiritually dead. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says this, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not again be subject to a yoke of slavery. But Peter also adds something to that in 1 Peter 2.16. Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Take these words to heart. Look at the text in verse 2 of Romans 8. Does it say that he will free, he will free you from sin's power or that he has? He has. It happened at a very definitive point in your past. When? At the defining moment when you gave your heart to Christ. He set you free. That's security. That's grace. Our security is reliable because of God's bold guarantee. Our security is resolved by God's boundless grace. And thirdly, our security rests in God's blessed gift. Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. See, the law couldn't save us because of our sinful nature. It was powerless to change us. The law makes demands and it condemns us when those demands are not met. But the law can never overcome sin. What we need is a new nature, a power strong enough to overpower the pull of our desire to sin. And the law could never do that. No law can ever do that. It was too weak, never 
it may condemn the sins within us, but it can never take them away from us. It commands righteous behavior, but it is powerless in providing the means to achieve it. In the words of C.S. Lewis, I cannot, by direct moral effort, give myself new motives. After the first few steps in the Christian life, we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can be done only by God. Spiritual inability of the law demanded that personal intervention of God. What all of us need is what the reformers used to call an alien righteousness. Someone else's righteousness. And the one thing that was literally impossible for the law to produce was that righteousness. So God stepped in and gave us Jesus, his own son. And I think there's a depth of emotion in those words that is almost impossible to convey that Paul had. What God asked Abraham to do in Genesis 22 too, the unthinkable thing, right? Sacrifice your only son. God himself did, according to John 3.16. And aren't you glad he did? Acts chapter 13 and beginning in verse 38, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, meaning Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Again, verse 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son, and the wording that Paul uses here is very, very precise. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came as a man. If he had said in the likeness of flesh, that would have indicated that he was something other than a man. If he had said in, the, in sinful flesh, he would have implied that Jesus sinned in his body. But he said, in the likeness of sinful flesh, in other words, although he was a true man and he was a sinless man, if Jesus had not been both fully human and completely sinless, his sacrifice would have been utterly useless. The only hope we have for salvation, my friends, the only assurance we have that it is secure is in the fact that God sent Jesus to be the offering for our sin. Jesus' teaching, as great as it was, Jesus' example, as impeccable as it was, Jesus' miracles, as powerful as they were, could not have saved us from our sins. Only his sacrificial death on the cross could pay the penalty. What a blessed gift. In the movie, The Last Emperor, the young child anointed as the last emperor of China, is pictured as living a magical life of luxury with a thousand servants at his command. What happens when you do wrong, his brother asks. Well, the young emperor replies, when I do wrong, someone else is punished for it. And to demonstrate, he breaks a jar and one of his servants in the room gets beaten. Friends, in the theology of Christ, 
Jesus reversed that ancient pattern. When the servants erred, the king himself was punished. And in that punishment, once for all, God condemned sin in the flesh. As Warren Wiersbe points out, the law of double jeopardy states in effect that a man cannot be tried twice for the same crime. Have you ever thought about that? Since Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins, and since you are in Christ, God will not condemn you. Our security rests in God's blessed gift. Finally, our security results in God's blazing glory. In verse 4, not much commentary needed here, but so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When Christ is alive in me and you, and we are submitting ourselves to the Spirit control, God's law will be fulfilled in us and he will be glorified. Friends, the bottom line is this. Christ didn't save us to make us happy. He saved us to make us holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Romans 8, verse 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Everything that is a spiritual reality, my friends, this is what I want you to take away. Everything that is a spiritual reality in your life is also a spiritual responsibility. So think about that one. Security, my friends, comes not from seeking a new message, as one man says, but from understanding an old message, an ancient and timeless one like this one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for those astounding words of truth that take us a lifetime to comprehend and to apply. But Father, I pray with my whole heart today that each one of us would take them to heart to go deep with you and to understand what it means to be people who have been freed from sin's curse. That we are free to live as bond slaves of Jesus. So let him be our focal point. Let him be our example. Let him be our power that spurs us on as we leave this place. For his name's sake, I pray. Amen.